Hello, you're listening to the Piper Power Exchange podcast series, and I'm Vivian Parry, a writer and broadcaster with a special interest in rare disease. The idea behind this series is to look at some of the key issues and challenges experienced by those living with hyperpara, exchanging the perspectives of doctors, patients and caregivers. It's an idea you seem to love, so thanks to all those of you who've been such enthusiastic fans of these podcasts. As ever, we need to start with our disclaimer. This podcast was initiated, produced and funded by Takeda and is available to the public for information purposes only. It should not be used for diagnosis or treating health problems or disease. It's not intended to substitute for consultation with a healthcare provider. Please consult your healthcare provider for further advice. The impact of the symptoms of hyperpara described in this podcast are based on two people's perspective of living with a condition described in their own words. Not all people living with a condition will experience the same symptoms. Well, in a first of the hyperpara exchange, we'll be hearing from the perspective of a caregiver who's a family member. A big welcome to Bill Glenister. He's the husband of Liz Glenister, who not only lives with hyperpara herself, but is also the CEO and founder of patient organisation Parathyroid UK. So I think we can safely say this is going to be a unique conversation. Liz, hello. And are you able to start by giving us an overview of what hyperpara is and what it's like to live with. Hello Vivian. Yes, well hyperpara covers a range of endocrine conditions caused by disorders to the parathyroid gland in your neck. 75% of our members have post-surgical hyperpara but there are also um, idiopathic, genetic and autoimmune types as well and all of them are rare and all the patients um, experience similar symptoms and require similar treatments. But um, whichever type you have, it's going to be lifelong, it's life-threatening, it can be debilitating and difficult to manage. Um, And that's because without parathyroid glands, you can't produce parathyroid hormone, which regulates calcium, which is vital for keeping your body working properly. What sort of symptoms do you get? They can um, range all the way from pins and needles through muscle cramps and uh, up to seizures. So symptoms operate along a a spectrum from really quite mild to very severe. And they can affect patients emotionally, mentally and physically. When did you get your diagnosis, Liz? I mean, how were you feeling at the time? Well, I had thyroid surgery in 1992 for thyroid cancer, um, which was um, fine, but I came out of hospital with hyperparathyroidism instead, um, which was physically a shock and very confusing because I didn't receive a diagnosis for it until almost 10 years later. Um, and it was only by chance that an accident and an emergency doctor used the word hyperparathyroidism. Gosh, so you had a very long journey to diagnosis and you must have felt actually a huge sense of relief when you finally found out what was wrong with you. How did you then go about learning to manage your condition? Yes, it it was absolutely huge relief. Um, uh, 
and because up till then I'd um, I'd been in and out of accident emergency and trying to manage things on my own. So um, I then went through a search for various endocrinologists, um, and it was only the seventh doctor that I discovered uh, who actually understood the condition. I understand you've recently co-authored a study which has been published looking at the burden of illness of chronic hyperpara on patients and carers. Uh, and the paper also focused on the relationships between patients and their doctors. From your own experience, um, from the information you gathered to do the study, do you think there are any gaps in communication between healthcare practitioners and hyperpara patients? Yes, um, very big gaps. Um, although we've got a fantastic team of calcium experts who dedicate a lot of time to educating other doctors about this condition, um, the fact remains that it is very poorly understood by most endocrinologists um, and the impact is still not well understood by many surgeons too. Um, and this causes a great deal of stress on patients who find they're not being adequately managed. So um, for this reason, we try to do a lot of um, conference attending to raise awareness about the condition amongst the medical profession. Thank you for that. Uh, I, perhaps now we ought to bring in Bill. Thank you very much, first of all, for being a special guest on this uh, podcast. When you first met Liz, no doubt love was blossoming and you uh, you didn't probably know much about uh, hyperpara, but what did you subsequently discover? <laughs> uh, a lot. Um, yes, when I first met Liz, it was all wonderful and very exciting and everything seemed quite uh, normal, really. I mean, she, uh, the first I became aware of it was one day when Liz had a massive hypo and we had to disappear off to accident and emergency. And uh, that was quite traumatic and began the whole process of me looking into it and finding out what I could do to try and help. And was there anything in particular you did to try and work out how you could support Liz in uh, all of this? Uh, yes, just reading up about the condition, trying to find out as much as I could. Um, I think that's the main thing, really. And going with her to talk to doctors. We spent a lot of time trying to find an, uh, an endocrinologist who could help Liz. I think we saw about 10 before we found somebody in Oxford. So since then, you've obviously got to know hyperpara much better, but you've also got to know Liz very much better. Have you become good at spotting when she's going to go into one of these uh, hypo attacks? Yes, I can usually tell because Liz goes very pale. And also she's not as patient as her normal kind patient <laughs> self is. Uh, she describes it as being ratty. Um, and I know if that's happening, then uh, she's definitely going low with her calcium. <laughs> So how can you tell the difference between general level rattiness and hyper-rattiness? <laughs> Not always easy, because sometimes I'm just plain annoying, I expect. 
but no, if she's if she's gone pale and she's getting tingling, and usually in her legs it starts in the feet, it starts feet start cramping, her legs start tingling. Sometimes she gets it in the face too, uh, or the lips. Um, so usually uh, I can work out that it's a a hypopara- uh, a hypocalcemic attack. And you just have to say to yourself, it's not personal. It's not because I didn't put the bins out again. This is hyperpara. Yes, it's something I've had to learn not to not to overreact. <laughs> so, as your uh, as a carer, how important is it for you to communicate with Liz's doctors to better understand hyperpara? Uh, well, Liz is the expert um, and knows a lot more than I do, but um, it does help if, if Liz is not very well on the day that we have to go to a prearranged appointment. Um, I can explain how Liz has been, you know, recently. Um, and, uh, yeah, just try and talk for her, really, during the appointment. And we do always say that if you can take somebody to an appointment with you, it's really helpful because you don't always take everything in. Yeah, and I usually make notes, too, so that Liz can look at it afterwards and you know, ask me about what was said if she wasn't totally aware of what was going on and I imagine that's hugely helpful and I'm really intrigued to hear about both your working lives and Liz you're the founder as I said and CEO of Parasaurus UK and you've put an enormous amount into developing that organization why did you start it well I just um I really felt very strongly that I didn't want anybody else to go through the trauma that I had post-surgery and because I couldn't find any information anywhere there just simply wasn't any and most doctors hadn't heard of the condition either so it just seemed that it had to be done and I was at home not working um, so I did it (laughs) and I understand that when you set up a forum you had something like 200 people sign up almost overnight. Yes, I was gobsmacked. Um, I'd been told by doctors that I was unique. Um, I might find another patient in America possibly, but I felt there just had to be other people out there and there were. And that's very, very common with rare disease that you suddenly discover all these other people. And actually it makes you feel so much better to learn that you're not alone, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. You can feel so isolated with a rare condition. So what do you think, Liz, that the main challenges are for uh, people living with hyperpower? I mean, what do all this community mainly come to you uh, with in terms of the advice they need? Our support groups are busy 24-7. There is always somebody in need of support, um, advice uh, on how to manage their calcium levels. This is is the biggest problem we have, um, that people have to self-manage. Only you know when you're having a calcium hypo. It happens very fast, usually without warning. You haven't got time to get to a doctor. What do you do? Isolation is another big thing that people have to deal with. Um, And being a rare condition, they don't feel well understood. Um, 
battling with benefits advice is a major issue. Um, finding a counselling specialist who understands the impact of the condition upon you. That's a that's a that's a huge amount, and employment and employment issues, I guess, are also oh, a yes. big uh, problem. And because you were working, weren't you, when you first had this happen to you? But have you had to retire from work? Yes, I was. Um, I was a teacher, um, a London primary school teacher, and um, also studying for master's degree. Um, and yes, I had to give them both up. That's very hard. And it must be hard as well when you've got a condition that is quite so rare to explain it to people who've never even heard of it. Now that you are the absolute master of hyperpara, how do you explain it to people? Um, good question. I'm, I mostly use the analogy of um, diabetes, which most people have heard of. Um, so they understand that um, a diabetic can have a hypo because they haven't because they haven't got enough sugar. So people understand that fairly well. Uh, and then I usually say, but then imagine a diabetic without a home tester or a replacement hormone, um, and that gets it home a bit better. Some people, though, with hyperparo, particularly at this very difficult time when so many people are fearful about their jobs they may choose not to tell their employers at all and that must be even more difficult very difficult and yes that does happen but your employers were good weren't they i was very lucky um i think a probably a primary school staff room is is a very supportive place anyway so i had um a very amenable head who helped me build up my hours um, and very supportive colleagues. Do you ever get employers coming to your organisation asking how they can help support employees? Yes, uh, we do. Not many, but we do, yes. Uh, and that's great. We'd like to see more of that. Liz, the study that you co-authored tells us that most full-time workers had to change their levels of employment following diagnosis. But I also wondered rather cheekily if that was also true for the caregiver. Yes, I mean, I was lucky that I, I'd already sort of retired from full-time uh, teaching when I met Liz. Um, and so I was able to, you know, devote the time that was necessary to helping Liz. Um, but if I hadn't been, if I'd still been a full-time uh, teacher... Uh, trying to run departments and things, um, I'd have found that impossible because I would have had to leave at times when, you know, just whenever Liz needed me. could be very inconvenient. It could be in the middle of a lecture or something and suddenly had to walk out. So, yes, I would have had to change my job there and then. Um, ideally, the carer should have a job where they can work from home and fit it around uh, the needs of the patient, I guess. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we think about how uh, the person with hyperpara explains things to their employer, but actually the carer of someone with hyperpara also needs some help in how to explain it to their employer, Bill. 
yes, I think so. You have to explain that you might need to have to leave uh, at any time, really, to, to be there to support or to take the person to hospital if things are really bad. So to both of you, and you can fight a bit over who answers, um, <laughs> anyone starting a new job this year, do you have any tips for work that you could share with them? And then, Bill, perhaps tips for carers in the same situation? Um, well, there are small things that can be done at work to help people, such as um, being able to take regular breaks. This is quite a big issue. Um, you need to have time to be able to take your medication. Um, I've heard of people not being allowed to have a drink, where it's very, very important to stay hydrated when you've got hyperpara. Time off for medical appointments. Simple, basic things like a decent chair. Um, and as having a hypo can be quite alarming for onlookers, um, helping to make staff aware of what they can do to help in emergency is really quite important. Um, I would take um, some information to the employer so yeah. that they understand a bit about the condition. Some, some patients have actually um, managed to give a little talk to their colleagues about it. Um, and that seems to go down well. Yeah, I think that's it, really. Just trying to um, inform them as much as possible as to what's likely to happen. And, you know, we've talked about the world of work, but let's come to a more domestic situation now. <laughs> what about family dynamics? Because it doesn't just affect the immediate carer. It must affect the whole family. Is that something that rings true for you, Bill? Uh, yes, it does. Um, you have to explain to everybody um, that things can change from one minute to the next. Uh, arrangements that you've made to go out, to go and visit something or you know, to go to whatever, really, cinema, theatre, uh, might have to be cancelled at the last minute. Um, and that makes it very difficult for both family and friends. Uh, on several occasions, I've had to sort of phone up immediately before uh, we were supposed to be going out with friends to say, look, we can't do it and try and give the tickets to somebody else. <laughs> so, yeah, people have to get used to that. And I was wondering, Liz, if this is not too personal a, a question, but when you have acute symptoms of hyperpower, do you think it affects your relationship with Bill? Yes. Um, this is when we go into acute patient care mode, really. So, yes, that's when I'm utterly dependent on Bill and Bill has to step up no matter what. And Bill, how is it for you when that happens? Um, well, I've got used to sort of, I pretty well know what to do now. Um, the difficulty is the balance, really, between um, being there, being supportive and sort of being too smothering, really, in a way. <laughs> um, I think being aware that the person wants to be independent, the patient needs to be independent, is really important. And so that that balance is a very tricky thing to, to get right all the time. And we've touched on your children a, a, a bit, but they were much younger when you, I imagine, when you first got hyperparalysis. How yeah. did you explain what had happened to you? Well... Um, when they were small, I just explained the basics and that I needed to rest a bit more. 
Um, and as they got older, of course, they understood more. But it was difficult for all of us because I didn't really know what was happening. So mm. I was learning about it myself um, as we went along. So we were we were all on a steep learning curve, really. And having had that experience between the two of you, have you picked up any tips along the way of how to you know best cope with with family life to balance it it's very difficult um for for parents with children and it's very difficult for children with parents with a long-term condition as well um i think you just have to uh keep a good sense of humor and try and talk things through as much as possible i think um and was there anything that you particularly struggled with uh, with your children? I mean, presumably they had to step up to do a few more of the chores that children always like to try and avoid. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, yes, isn't that the case with everybody? Um, but yes, it's... it's um, the whole uh, family dynamics has to change a bit you know division of labor uh and it'd be quite it can be quite quite tricky i mean bill what are your thoughts on that i think they found it probably i mean i didn't know um liz's children when they were younger um but i get the impression from when we did meet them that uh they must have found it quite a a burden in a way, knowing that the mum was ill, yeah. because one of them said to me straight away, it's great that you've got together with mum because, you know, we don't have to worry so much about her being taken care of now. So, Or subtext, now you can load the washing machine. Absolutely. So, Bill, I want you to come up with some tips for other carers. What would you say would be your top two or three things <laughs> two or three um well try and understand the condition thoroughly yourself because you may have to explain it especially if you have to go to accident accident and emergency you may need to explain to the the junior doctor there uh, what's going on or to the nurse um get to know the symptoms and signs inside out uh, so that you can act immediately and be prepared to get uh, the patient's uh, medication if, if they're not with it. And also be very aware of what medication they take and when. Um, I think those are the main things, really. And Liz, how about you? What kind of tips could you share with us for just getting on with day-to-day -day life and being able to to work um i think the one of the hardest things people find is learning to say no uh, um especially for women i think um no i can't do that anymore um actually no i might not be available to do that it's really quite hard and it's all tied up with your self-image and your expectations of yourself um I'd say listen to your body and learn to act immediately. Don't get things, don't let things get worse. Appreciate the need to rest. You might need to operate a 
one day on, one day off type of system, if you can. Um, so you have to be good to yourself. Yes, you, you have to accept your limitations, but at the same time, test your new boundaries. Uh, Bill, I want to get a bit of final word of wisdom from you, you know, one carer to a to another, because, you know, you've really seen this, not only from Liz's point of view, but also all the people that come along uh, to the, your organisation. Is there anything that you think that you perceive people really struggle with who are carers that you could give something, some useful advice on? Yes, maybe sort of finding a bit of time for yourself. I mean, I'm lucky because I'm a sort of a, a painter, so I, uh, an artist painter, so I can, um, you know, get that space, um, but still be around and be available when Liz needs me. Um, I, I think just learning to take life, as I say, one day at a time, really. You never know when somebody's going to have a hypo. Um, so you've got to be alert and aware of what's going on. And I say, as I said before, just be supportive without being excessively supportive when you're not wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and most importantly, knowing when ratty is ratty and it's hyper para and know yeah. uh, when ratty is, you really shouldn't be doing that, Bill. <laughs> Yes, uh, and yes, learning. But of course, uh, I'm never ratty otherwise. No, no, I'm <laughs> learning not to take offence. You know, sort of to to realise it's the condition uh, and not <laughs> the person having a go at you. Really, Liz, I want to end with you because you've achieved marvellous things at Parathyroid UK. Not only in bringing together the hyperpara community, but actually really raising the level of awareness of this. Uh, extraordinarily rare condition. I wonder what's next for you? What are your aspirations for the future? Oh, thank you. I'm really proud of all we've managed to achieve as, as volunteers and patients. Um, I will actually be retiring soon, so I'm sure I'll be watching Parathyroid UK go from strength to strength um, with new treatments being developed and um, patient needs being met in the future, I hope. And one thing that uh, that has become very apparent at the moment, we're all living in a time of COVID. We have no idea how long it's going to go on. Mm. But actually the need for home testing of calcium, particularly a time when people are frightened to go into hospitals or GP surgeries, has become more urgent than ever, hasn't it? Absolutely. That's just what I was going to say. It really is crucial now more than ever. Well, thank you both very much indeed for talking to us on Hyperpara Exchange. It's obviously so challenging a condition to live with and has such an impact not only on the carer but the much wider family. And it's very good of you to come and speak so honestly and openly about it. So... I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Hyper Para Exchange. We hope that we'll have another podcast in the Hyper Para Exchange series. And I look forward to welcoming you to that one. Bye for now.